Hello and welcome to the latest We Are Guernsey podcast. Guernsey is a leading global finance centre of substance, stability, security and sustainability. My name is Rosie Alsop. I'm head of communications here at We Are Guernsey. That's the brand under which the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry, Guernsey Finance, promotes the island's financial services sector in its respective chosen markets. On today's podcast, we're discussing the growing importance of directors' duties and fiduciary duty to encompass ESG factors, which is particularly timely for Guernsey as the island prepares to align itself with the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative's 21st Century Fiduciary Duty. That's an initiative that widens the scope of fiduciary duty to consider the impact of investment decision-making and wider strategy and business models on the climate. To discuss this trend in more detail, I am delighted to introduce today's guest, Ellie Mulholland. She's the director at the Commonwealth Climate and Law Initiative. Ellie spoke at the Guernsey IOD's Sustainability and Climate Change Understand Directors Duties Fringe event as part of We Are Guernsey's Sustainable Finance Week event back in June of this year. This is a particularly timely podcast for us as a promotional agency as we gear up to host our annual private wealth forum later in the year. It's titled The Power of Capital. A key discussion point at this year's event will be analysing and what it means to conduct proper director's duties and fiduciary duty in the modern age of ESG and impact investing. If you haven't already caught any of the sessions from Sustainable Finance Week, you can watch it back via the on-demand section at weareguernsey.com, where you can also find the link to the Guernsey IOD Fringe event that Ellie spoke at. Welcome, Ellie, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Rosie. It's great to be here. So uh, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. Could you tell everyone how you ended up working in this space with regard to climate and ESG consideration, particularly from a legal perspective? If you could just tell us a bit of your backstory and your career to date, that would be fantastic. Thanks, Rosie. Well, it was in law school that I started to connect the dots between what I'd read in my high school science classes about the impacts of a warming world, the crop failures, the water scarcity, the migration, the wildfires, and what that means for the law. And you might have by now heard my accent. I'm Australian originally, but now based in London. So it was during law school back in Australia, I edited a special issue of the Law Review on climate change, and I wrote a dissertation on carbon markets. And then I did what a lot of law graduates do. I took a training contract at a large commercial law firm, and I specialized in energy and resources because at the time there was a bit of carbon and climate work and renewable energy in those practice groups. But really, I just ended up doing a lot of oil and gas transactions and selling mines. Um, There just wasn't enough work at the time to have a whole legal practice out of this, even though it felt so expansive to me. And once you connect the dots and you see how big these issues are, it was like, why aren't we thinking about this in a strategic way across all of commercial practice? Um, What it will mean for finance and for projects and transactions and intellectual property. Because once you get started with thinking about how big these changes are that these nature risks are making to our 
uh, society and our economies and then how big the policy and market responses are, you can't unsee just how much it affects uh, all of legal practice. So then I moved to the UK to do a master's. Uh, but again, it perhaps be a little bit surprising. I didn't do a master's in environmental law. I recognized that I had these skills and knowledge gap in finance and economics. So I went to Oxford to do a master's in law and finance. And it was then once I finished that master's at Oxford that I'd started as the first director of the Commonwealth Climate and Law Initiative or CCLI. Um, and so that's a, we've spun out that initiative from Oxford and we look at legal research and stakeholder engagement on the intersection of climate and nature risks and existing companies and securities laws, and particularly looking at that driver of directors and fiduciary duties and what that means for um, the need for these important decision makers that can be held personally liable if they're not doing things well enough to do better on climate and environmental decision making, to consider the risks and also to integrate it into strategy and disclosure as well. And then just to kind of finish off there, I was actually lured back into private practice. So I do that two days per week in climate risk and ESG and sustainability risks and impacts for a commercial law firm in Trellison. And that's because our clients need trusted legal advisors to help with these risk management, liability, strategy, and navigating the disruption. And so I finally can see that um, the practice that I didn't have the first time now exists in legal practice. Wow, that's a fascinating career arc to date. So I thought the opening to your presentation at the Guernsey IOD Fringe event as part of Sustainable Finance Week was really interesting and actually quite hard hitting, particularly as you opened by mentioning that many lawyers who've never said a green or sustainable thing in their lives have actually come out and said that consideration of climate and the environment is part of a director's duties. Can you talk a bit more around this? Why do lawyers say this? And more importantly, why does it fall on directors and trustees to consider climate and environmental issues in their day-to-day -day business operations? Thanks, Rosie. When I was talking about these lawyers that have never said anything green or sustainable, it's because they are commercial lawyers, often um, uh, commercial barristers who have very... Uh, very substantial, long, eminent legal careers uh, working for corporates and governments uh, advocating in court. And they've never said anything green in their lives. They don't work for environmental organisations. I don't know their views on Greenpeace. But then they came out when the evidence is presented to them. And that's what it's really about. It's about lawyers responding to the evidence and connecting the dots between what this evidence means for the application of the existing law. And so when I say the evidence, what's the relevant evidence that we're looking to here? It's kind of three main arcs of that. The first is the climate science, or if we're thinking about another kind of nature, risk or environmental um, or sustainability related risk. So for, the cli for climate change, we've got this unequivocal human imprint that the IPCC, the gold standard for climate science, they're telling us that we are warming the planet. It will only get warmer and that net zero is an imperative of the physics to stabilise at any temperature, and that we need to minimise the total amount that we, need, we emit before we get to that climate neutrality so we don't have catastrophic damage. The second bit of evidence is really the economics of the transition. So what are the market trends, the technological changes, the regulator, investor, and other customer and stakeholder expectations? 
And the third is litigation and liability exposures as issues around climate damages and climate action makes their way to the courts. And so these lawyers are looking deeply at this evidence that shows that climate change poses material financial risks to entities and portfolios that needs to be managed for them to survive and thrive in this disruption. So they've concluded that directors and investment fiduciaries acting with due care, skill and diligence or prudence and in the best interests of their companies and beneficiaries. So if you're aware of the law around corporate governance, you're picking up those words. That is what the law requires. And so directors need to do this to consider these risks and opportunities in their governance roles. That's really the day-to-day board meetings, the risk management oversight, the strategy and disclosure. Otherwise, they could be falling short of where they need to be to meet their legal responsibilities. So it's about connecting the dots with the evidence. And it really is that climate's not the only issue that previously was environmental or ethical that we now realise needs to be integrated into governance decision-making. And so I'm particularly thinking about the ecological crisis. So what are we going to do if we don't have any more bees and you have a business like almond growing agriculture that relies on bees or inequality across and within society? And so these can also be connected with fiduciary duties and director's duties. But climate is such a mega trend in terms of the breadth, depth and magnitude of these risks across the economy that are presented to these lawyers and the evidence is there. So we've seen that climate's been the kind of starting point for connecting duties with this disruption in the world. And that's a view that you echoed in your presentation back in June. In most cases, directors, duties, laws and regs already have the scope for directors and in a similar light, investment fiduciaries to consider climate and environmental impact on their investment decision making. So while perhaps a slightly controversial view, I'm sure some would question the importance of jurisdictions aligning with the likes of 21st Century Fiduciary Duty Initiative. Do you think initiatives such as this still have standing, particularly as the world is becoming more concerned and rightly so with greenwashing? Thanks, Rosie. That's a really good point to bring up greenwashing. I think that not every jurisdiction has needed to take steps to align their corporate prudential um, and securities laws with the need to act on these climate and environmental issues. And particularly we've seen in um, some common law jurisdictions like the UK and Australia and Canada and Singapore, the work of uh, influential legal commentators and financial regulators' statements on their expectations of what the law, the current law requires. Um, But any clarification, guidance or initiatives is always welcomed. And so that's why I think that Guernsey's um, roadmap for the 21st century fiduciary duty initiative is really helpful and should be welcomed. And I think where we can go further is that current law gets you so far. And if we want to go further, then um, regulatory and policy developments um, will be helpful there and further expectations from uh, further expectations from regulators and investments, that clarification Uh, will be really key. But I think a key message is just how far the current law actually requires. The issue is how are these, if if you do have statements of expectations, how is that not greenwashing? 
I think from a government perspective, uh, so that it's not greenwashing, I think it needs to be backed up with some supervisory expectations and supervisory action for laggards. But also the corollary is real support for leaders who are acting on these issues. So we need to hold up uh, where it's being done well and make sure that we learn through that virtuous cycle because these are really complex issues and to do it and do it well, we need all the help we can get. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So while we're on the subject of greenwashing, um, I was thinking about something you touched on. You, I recall you explained some net zero commitments have been referred to as greenwashing. And so ensuring that these announced objectives are serious, they ought to be backed up with a substantial plan. However, greenwashing also poses a liability risk for directors. So can you talk me through a little bit uh, in detail about how greenwashing poses a liability risk? risk? Yeah, sure. Greenwashing is really just a form of misleading disclosure. Not You're not doing what you say you're doing. So if the disclosure is in a special document where we have rules around uh, that that document shouldn't be misleading, then greenwashing is just caught by normal securities laws. So an example of that is that directors have obligations to sign off on financial filings and annual reports. So if the greenwashing statements, um, they might be TCFD disclosures, net zero strategy uh, in the narrative portion of the director's reports that's been signed off. If that's not backed up by actual integration of strat- into strategy and aligning capital expenditure with that statement of ambition and with those targets, then there could be liability on the directors or the company for misleading disclosure. And even if the disclosure isn't in a financial filing or a document like a prospectus or an annual report that the law puts special um, uh, obligations on, if the company, the company can still face reputational or liability risks. And so we saw that in, um, uh, in some advertising. So there was a case where a nonprofit client Earth brought a greenwashing complaint against a BP, so the oil and gas and energy company, uh, for their advertising and marketing to consumers around them being green uh, and the mismatch between those statements about their renewable energy business and just how much they capex they were spending on oil and gas and how much they were spending on growing their renewable energy business. And so Client Earth ended up uh, making that complaint BP changed their advertising in response to the complaint. But even with that change, the national contact point for that complaint. So the decision maker said that it was well-founded. And so we can see that even if it's not this kind of hard hitting like court liability, there are still reputational and liability risks uh, in relation to greenwashing. And this comes to something we could talk about shortly, which is really that difference between liability and responsibility. And so directors really have that obligation to make sure that their companies aren't greenwashing as part of good governance, because if they fall below that, yes, there could be consequences before liability. So directors could face 
accountability mechanisms like uh, votes against them or um, the ExxonMobil proxy fight. So we can see that greenwashing, we really do want these uh, statements and targets and ambitions, particularly around emissions reductions and net zero strategies. They need to be credible plans and short-term actions because we know that's what really matters. That's really interesting. And I think it proves that greenwashing can do tangible financial damage. Um, And as we noted in your presentation at the Fringe event, more and more firms are getting into uh, financial difficulty and some even filing for bankruptcy because of disastrous decision making when it comes to climate, such as the Californian firm PG&E. So, um, Ellie, tell me what steps directors can take to reduce their liability risk while also ensuring they're setting achievable and realistic goals for preventing further climate damage. This is really difficult. I wish there was, I mean, there's no, there's never a one size fits all answer for good governance because each company is unique and each jurisdiction is unique and each decision is very unique. But What is required is increasingly robust process. And that process is on uh, risk management oversight strategy and very much doing all of this on a forward-looking basis. So talk if you have through through a few E's around process. So uh, the E's that I really like to focus on are educate, inquire, examine and express. So I'll talk you through those E's, but really focusing on process to make sure that uh, companies are looking ahead because we know that the future will, even today, the risk environment looks so different to just five years ago to the safe and stable climate that we have lived in for so many years before that. So looking at that process focus. The first thing to do for directors is to get informed. So what are the possible future worlds uh, that the climate scientists are talking about, that the central bankers are talking about, and that litigants are talking about in court? And what will happen when will we hit 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial temperatures? What's the difference between a 1.5 degree world and a two degree world? And what are the tipping cascades that would mean that we could get from a two degree world to a four degree world without further emissions? And so it's really about educating And then the second is inquire. So ask management and independent expert advisors. Are we assessing the risks and opportunities on a forward-looking basis? And for this scenario analysis that's uh, supported by the TCFD recommendations, that's really key to check the risks and resilience of your strategy and business model across possible future worlds, including 1.5 degree worlds, uh, disorderly transitioned, or what if we go to a hothouse world. And really, you can get ahead of the game with climate risk stress tests. So to check that financial institutions, uh, for example, loans books of banks are going to be tested against shock. So asking, are we doing this work ahead of those stress tests? And another one to get ahead of the game is around 1.5 degree Paris aligned accounts. And so they are a Uh, financial statements where the assumptions underlying the accounts, the central case is consistent with the policy and regulatory responses that would limit warming to 1.5 degrees. 
So are we doing these? And if not, could we prepare sh shadow accounts? Last two, examine. So that's critically test assumptions on the risk management scenarios, financial statement estimates, asking other shadow carbon prices that we're um, testing our portfolio against, are they robust? What if it's suddenly they were not tax deductible? And have we tested against the assumptions of the International Energy Agency's net zero emissions by 2050 scenario for those for our energy sector holdings? And then finally, to express, to meet accounting standard guidance and investor expectations to make sure that all of this work is accurately and robustly and appropriately expressed in your accounts, not to be, uh, and the financial statements and the disclosures in, the, in any annual reports as well, not to be scared about saying something, but to say something that's reasonable and defensible and appropriate and that your investors are asking for. That's great. Thank you. Now, I thought that one interesting case you mentioned, uh, and you name-checked them just a second ago, was ExxonMobil in the US, uh, in which there remains an ongoing litigation case. But interestingly, it was the investors that sued the chief executive and many of the directors for breaching their fiduciary duty. Do you think cases like this will become more frequent or will it serve as a short, sharp shock that will force firms and their respective senior executive staff to take the climate aspect of their directors and fiduciary duties more seriously? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that the way in which I would approach that is to think about, well, what is this litigation and these liability risks responding to? And it's really responding to the physical risks of a warming world and the transition risks. So when we talk about physical risks, we mean that the climate-related financial risks that arise from the physical impacts. So these are the increased storms and heat events and fires, and then those long-term impacts like a sea level rise and ocean acidification, and then how they flow through to become to have financial impacts on companies and investors through affecting uh, through damage to assets through decreased productivity affecting uh, costs and revenue. And so they're the physical risks. And then these liability risks also arise from the transition risks. So these are the policy, regulatory, market, technological responses uh, as society agree has agreed to this net zero transition and responds to those changes of a warming world. So that's where we have carbon prices and the cost declines of internal combustion engine vehicles. And so litigation against directors arises when they're failing to take into account these physical and transition risks in their risk management oversight, their strategy and their disclosures. And then when we think about, well, is this litigation just once off? We need to think about these climate risks and what we're told about them, what we understand from the experts is that they're non-linear. So these climate risks are not cyclical and they're not going to go away over the foreseeable future. We don't know how they're going to play out, whether we will have more physical risks or more transition risks, um, whether we'll have extreme physical risks and less transition risks because governments don't do as much, or whether we have extreme transition risks because we have suddenly governments pull really hard, fast, sharp levers on, on climate policy. 
Uh, we don't know how that's going to play out, but we knew, do know that they will increase in future and they're not cyclical. They're not going away. So what will that mean then for the litigation that's responding to those lists? To, the, to those risks, well, I don't think that's going to go away either. What we might see is a move from strategic litigants. And so particularly thinking about the strategic litigation we're seeing in Australia, which is very forward-looking and saying, we don't think you're managing the risks today that you are facing in future. So the, the loss hasn't arisen yet, but they're trying to get better risk management, governance and disclosure for beneficiaries, for investors. So I think we might move from those strategic litigants that are trying to change behaviour today to those more traditional compensation claims from shareholders where loss has been suffered and they're looking to see who they can recoup that loss from. And particularly if companies fail, then people might be looking to, shareholders might be looking to directors to backstop their losses. And so that's one way in which I think that we might see a shift in litigation. And the others is that we might see a shift moving from climate risks to other nature-related financial risks. So we might have litigation relating to a failure to oversee risk management strategies uh, relating to financial risks from loss of biodiversity or ecosystem services. So it could be other nature-related risks or uh, that could end up with some more litigation there. But in short, I don't think it's going away. It will be interesting to see how it plays out. Now, I thought you made a, a really thought-provoking point towards the end of your presentation when you asked the question uh, about the difference between responsibility and liability. And you rightly pointed out that attempting to fulfil fiduciary duty in the 21st century by simply just avoiding liability isn't enough. And you tied this into the growing importance of achieving and maintaining good governance. And that's something we in Guernsey are increasingly aware of and consider in high regard when it comes to servicing and administering private wealth structures and vehicles in particular. Uh, you alluded to the fact that to achieve good governance in this day and age, one ought to consider their responsibility to address climate issues, not simply pass it off as something to be managed in risk or liability terms. So, Ellie, how do you think a company or structure can adjust and update its model to bring climate and environment concerns to the fore and be considered a responsibility rather than just a liability to be managed? Rosie, when I talk about the difference between liability and responsibility, often I talk about it in a very narrow sense, and that's a, a legal point where liability really is the flaw, your, your minimum standards of conduct, that if you fall so far below expectations, then you could be found to be personally liable. And But legal responsibility that directors and fiduciaries have to their companies and to their members uh, and their beneficiaries is really much higher than that. And even in a legal sense, you have this responsibility to act with due care, skill and diligence, to act prudently, to act in the best interest of the company. And we really need to make sure that directors and fiduciaries are meeting that higher standard of legal responsibility, even if you will only end up in court or end up with a lawsuit if you fall so far below it. And we see this different, differential, uh, it's legally recognised in the U, in 
US Delaware corporate law, there's a difference between standards of responsibility and standards of liability. We see it in the UK where they have requirements on large companies for directors to have those section 172 statements of how they are fulfilling their responsibilities and not just how they're not falling so far below it. Um, but there is a real deeper question of liability and responsibility. And I'm really glad you alluded to that because this is where we move beyond climate and environmental issues is that kind of compliance or liability issues. Um, we then move through them being strategic and that's still very legal. And we move to them being systemic and existential. And the recent IPCC report was very clear on that. The projected impacts in some of the warming pathways are catastrophic. And with these systemic and existential risks, we can still think about them narrowly in a legal sense. And investment funds are particularly well-placed to consider these risks, these systemic uh, risks, particularly long-term investors such as pension funds, you know, if you're a pension fiduciary, you can think, well, what kind of world will my members retire into? And we saw that in, a, in an Australian case where a pension fund member that was 23 sued their, uh, sued their pension fund saying that, you, that the corporate trustee of the pension fund was breaching its uh, duties to act prudently with the risk management strategy and disclosure of its investments um, by failing to take into account climate risks. And the judge was summarizing the claimant's arguments. Well, it's not very, you know, it's all well and good, but my investments aren't going to do very well if they're underwater when I retire. And so really thinking about, well, what kind of world will my members retire into in in that investment decision-making? I think uh, long-term investors can really go into some detail in thinking about that. And also companies too, and particularly financial institutions like banks and investors are incentivized and required by their business models and prudential regulation to consider these systemic risks that um, can affect financial stability and systematically across the economy as well that banks and insurers are exposed to. So I think thinking about environment and climate concerns can really be there in that legal sense and also a little bit more in the, uh, the deeper questions of what are our investments and what are our companies, what are they there for? And uh, in this, we're really thinking around net zero. Is there a scope for leadership? as we get to net zero strategy. And so I think net zero strategy for high emitters and financiers is key from a legal sense, but also in terms of leadership. So what's your responsibility to your investors and to your members? We don't know how the future will play out. And there is a really big gap between government ambition uh, and implementation on net zero. We have Nine, I think it's nine of the 10 world's largest economies have set net zero targets, but yet policies haven't caught up and we still are setting, we still are heading, even though we have these 2050 net zero targets, we're still heading for warming that is not in line with those targets. And so there's a really big gap, but I wouldn't bet against the government and other private sector actors trying to meet these net zero by 2050 targets. And I would encourage... Um, companies and structures to really play an active role in bringing about a fair and equitable transition to a net zero emissions economy uh, 
as a matter of systemic managing systemic risks, but also thinking about uh, what your corporation and what your investment structure is doing in the face of these systemic and existential risks. Absolutely. Now, uh, we've come to the final question. I can't believe it. We've uh, I've had such a great chat. It's flown past. Um, so, Ellie, Guernsey has updated its Code of Corporate Governance, and that was something that was announced at Sustainable Finance Week in June by William Mason, the Director General of Guernsey's Finance Regulator, the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Uh, this will require boards to consider the impact of their strategy on the climate and the risk profile, and it comes into force on the 1st of October this year. So additionally, and as I mentioned in the introduction to the podcast, the island's also in the final stages of drafting a roadmap to align with the 21st century fiduciary duty initiative. Once that's been published, um, Guernsey would be the only finance centre of its kind to align with the world's major economies on this. We here in Guernsey think we're doing well, but we accept we could do more. So my final question for you is, what do you recommend Guernsey does to ensure it continues to address the pressing environment and climate challenges as a leading global finance centre? That's really simple. No, I wish wish it was. (laughs) I I have two ideas. And um, the first one, the big focus for me is on clear expectations from financial regulators on standards of conduct and disclosures. And so I think the update to the code of con, sorry, the code of corporate governance in Guernsey is an excellent step. And so to the roadmap on the um, 21st century fiduciary duty initiative, and it wouldn't be just setting it out, but actually acting on it with the roadmap. That's really crucial. Unfortunately, in some jurisdictions, um, we have roadmaps that are, what do you say, sitting in the proverbial glove box of the car and aren't actually used <laughs> to navigate anything. So it would be acting on the roadmap and um, acting on the guidance. And the next step would be, so where to for this expectations of conduct and disclosures, it would be guidance on accounting standards and the, the need to integrate these financial risk issues from climate and other emerging risks into the assumptions underlying the accounting estimates. So how you're updating your assumptions uh, of the assumptions that are used in asset impairments and useful lives and provisions for onerous contracts and the costs and revenues underlying the uh, book values uh, in your accounting statements. I think that's really key and we've got some guidance from the IFRS trustees with some educational materials they published in November 2020 and to see Guernsey pick that up would be uh, would be really commendable. We've had the Australian Accounting and Audit Standard Setters set some guidance there and it's um, it's being noticed and picked up by the, uh, the report preparers and the accountants and auditors in Australia. So I think that's my kind of concrete one. And then a little bit less concrete would be support for the how we're doing this, because I think that is so difficult. We're all on a journey of figuring out what good governance, what minimum standards of governance, what best practice looks like in such a disruptive environment where the risk environment, where the opportunities and where we need to go, the journey we need to go on is so different from the journey that we've been on in the past. 
And so looking at how to implement uh, climate and other nature risks into governance, into accounting statements, uh, sorry, into accounting standards, into uh, the financial filings. I think for uh, to do that work with the private sector on how we do this will be really key as well. So whether it's um, working together to produce joint guidance, um, having some workshops where there's really opportunities for lessons learned and to grapple with these challenges together, I think will be really key because I think we don't know. We are, as Mark Carney, the, uh, the former head of the governor, the former governor of the Bank of England and head of the G20 Financial Stability Board. So they're kind of one of the leaders of the TCFD. He says we're on a virtuous circle of learning. And I think for a, um, a leading global financial centre like Guernsey to take a lead part in, that, in those learnings, I think will be really key to staying at the forefront. And as you say, get the uh, get the glove box open, get the map out, <laughs> read it, follow the path. <laughs> follow the path. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's all we've got time for today, I'm afraid. I would like to thank my guest, Ellie Mulholland, for what's been an excellent conversation. It's been really valuable to discuss the issues of directors and fiduciary duty in the modern age, as Guernsey's soon set to publish its own roadmap to align with the highly respected initiative. I'd also like to thank you for tuning in today and listening to this podcast. If you're keen to follow the conversation, we'll be discussing this and more at our upcoming Guernsey Private Wealth Forum 2021, which is at the Banking Hall in London on the 5th of October. It's particularly exciting for us as it marks a post-COVID return to physical events in the UK. If you can't attend in person, make sure that you follow up with the event by watching it back via the on-demand section on our website. We have a catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the We Are Guernsey podcast channel, and you can discover why we're a leading centre of green and sustainable finance via our sister podcast, the Guernsey Green Finance Podcast, which was recently rated in the top 10 green podcasts of the world by the Green Finance Guide. And you can check both of those out by searching for them on your preferred podcast platform. If you'd like to know more about Guernsey and its financial services sector, visit weareguernsey.com where you'll find everything from the latest news to informative literature and our on-demand section. And we'd love to hear your feedback. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at WeAreGuernsey. We also have links to Ellie and the Commonwealth Climate and Law Initiative social media in our show notes. So check those out to hear more from them. That's all for now. We'll be back with another edition of the We Are Guernsey podcast soon. For now, it's goodbye from Guernsey.